Good morning. Happy Sabbath. You know, my husband asked me, did you ever speak up front? And I said, you know, my time there, most of the, the talks that I ever gave was in the youth center. You guys look good from here. It's nice to see you from this perspective. So just like Pastor Jeff said, I did grow up in this church. Um, I kind of wanted to take a, a poll of how many of my educators were sitting in that choir, because as I looked around, I counted six, but I'm sure there are more. But I have memories of sitting here um, during children's story. I also have memories of running from the up, that upper area. I don't even know what it's called anymore, the Sabbath school, which I know it's all changing now. And I would run downstairs to go get my sister because... We would then rush to my mom and say, can you please convince dad to finish his last conversation? We're starving. And you know how it is trying to get somebody out of that lobby. <laughs> but then from there, I went over to the Lower Youth Center and um, had, I have many memories in there. And actually, if you stay around long enough for my sermon, which um, I'm going to pause here and say, I promise to get you out on time because I am actually four months pregnant and I will be starving after this sermon. So I promise to get you out on time. Um, if you stay long enough, I will prove to you that I was a youth member here by a couple photos. So stick around and, and you'll see um, me and maybe my adventure garb or something like that. So I went to the Lower Youth Center, I have many memories there, and I convinced Pastor Mark to let, and I'm, I'm going to, I have a few more people in the audience right now. So do you guys know what happens when a Hispanic or Latin woman turns 15 years old? Quinceanera. So I somehow convinced Pastor Mark to let me throw my quinceanera in the Lower Youth Center. And we tore apart that room. <laughs> and... To my surprise, he invited us back to continue being a part of the youth. <laughs> and so from the lower youth center, of course, you go to the upper youth center when you get a little bit older. And I have many memories of stacking chairs in that room, of vacuuming that room, of having the privilege and honor of hearing many people um, come in there and actually feed into me, which is sort of why I'm here today. So when Jeff approached me about this, when I first heard about the series, you know, I, I went to, I did my undergrad in theology, I went to Andrews Seminary and got my master's degree in divinity, but when he shared it with me, I told him, I said, I don't know if you know this, Jeff, but I grew up in this church, and a lot of the reason why I decided to become a chaplain is because of what happened in my very young years, and so what I'd like to do today is I actually want to do something a little bit harder than preach an exegetical sermon, which if my professor Judd Lake is uh, watching, I'm very sorry, you're going to be very disappointed this morning. I'm actually going to do something a little harder. I'm going to tell you my story. I'm going to tell you about the years here. I'm going to tell you something that I was going through, but also I'm going to tell you the, the parallel part of what was going on here at this church that really influenced my life and essentially would set the course for what I'm now doing serving as a chaplain at the hospital. So before I begin, I'd, I want to just invite you to just say a quick word of prayer with me, if that would be okay. God in heaven, you are so welcome here in this place. This is your house. We are your people. And we come before you this morning, and we thank you for being with us. And we thank you for the privilege that we have to be with you. Amen. 
So I want to start out, and I'm going to share that I'm actually going to share a parallel story in Scripture with you. Now, I actually asked Patty if she would do me the favor and not put it on the screen, and I just want to take it old school. And I want to read to you the way maybe your parents would read to you when you were younger. And if you didn't have this, and this is your first opportunity that I can just read to you some Scripture, then it's my privilege to do so. So I will be reading from Ruth chapter 1. Verse 1, for those of you who want to just double check that I am reading the correct thing. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, and I'm just going to read a few verses and tell you a little bit about the story that really touched my life and continues to do so. And it goes like this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Chilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the second, I'm sure you know, is Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Mahlon and Chilion died, so that the women were left without her two sons and her husbands. So I want to pause right here, and if you know anything about this time period in Scripture especially, I mean, most of the Scripture, this continues to reign true, but the cultural context and the historical context during this time is women who were left without a male heir or a man in their lives connected to them couldn't own land. Essentially, it would be a struggle to, to find ways to eat even. And so the story continues, and I'm not going to go into too much depth here, but I want to share another verse with you. From verse 15, when Naomi is speaking directly to Ruth, and this, and I didn't say this in the other two, but one of these verses is a verse I dedicated to my husband when we stood at the altar. And it goes like this in verse 15. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God my God. So I am going to pause here, and I want you to hold your thoughts on this part of the story. And now I want to turn to my story. So I was about five, six years old when my grandmother was diagnosed with cancer. And being in Orlando, Florida, I was, I didn't realize, but we were so lucky to be so connected to such an incredible healthcare system right near us in our backyard. And so my family and, and my grandmother, and we, we all decided and worked together on how to best um, attack this, this disease, this cancer. And as she was aging, the chemotherapy and the radiation was a little too tough on her. She was in her 80s and so quickly decided, and my family and her all together made the decision that she would um, essentially do a lot of palliative, what we call just kind of comfort care. I didn't really know this at the time. I didn't get all of this stuff. I was, like I said, six, seven years old. What I did get was when my mom would pick me up or my dad would pick me up diligently from every day, we, they would pick me up for Orlando Junior Academy and we would drive to where my grandmother was staying, where she was living. I just watched her consistently 
take care of my grandmother. And she's not, she doesn't work in healthcare, but she would turn into a nurse for the evening. She would make sure her food was ready for her that night and the next day. And in her case, she would take care of her bandages because she had some wounds that need attending to quite literally. And they would do this every single day. And so as a young child, I watched my family diligently take care of their own, my grandmother. A few years later, as she had declined, some beautiful things happened in that relationship between my mother and grandmother. She ended up passing peacefully, and she actually had her eldest son with her, my uncle, who was there when she passed. And so that began in me a journey around and thinking around this thing called grief that I kept hearing that word a lot. As much as we were grateful that my grandmother passed peacefully, I watched as my mother was suffering and dealing with what this meant for her. And I became even more uh, grateful for my large family. I come from, on one side, a very large Cuban family, and on the other side, a very large Puerto Rican family. And so I remember we just became even more knit. When you go through something like that, you just get really close. Now, I can imagine many of you in this audience have also gone through things like this, and you know how important it is to just come close to family during this time. So a couple years later, I decided for my birthday, which is in June, Right here in Orlando, I wanted, my, oh, and I'm going to just say, does anybody know where the health food store is, the um, Hoover's Essential Health? So my parents live right down that road, and that's the home I grew up in. So you can walk outside this church and almost see the front entrance of our, the street that connects us to 436. So we were right there, and I said I wanted everybody to come over and play basketball. I was a sports fan. Um, I loved, I, through OJA and Fleece and Forest Lake, I always enjoyed playing sports. So my family indulged me. And for my birthday, we had everybody over. It was going to be so much fun. And we did. We were having a great time. And that same uncle was there who um, was with my grandmother when she passed. And everybody said, okay, Jocelyn, we're, we're tired of being out here. It's really hot. So we want to go eat. So a lot of people had started to go inside. But my uncle said, all right, kiddo, I'll play one more game of horse with you. So I said, okay, thanks. So we started playing. My mom ended up bringing out some lemonade. And... Everyone was inside, and I remember it like it was yesterday. I was about to take a shot, and my uncle had said he was going to go take, get some lemonade. And out of nowhere, I hear this huge thud, and then a second thud. And as I look over, he's hit the car, and now he's onto the concrete. And essentially, he was having a massive heart attack. And so I screamed. My dad, who happens to be a firefighter, paramedic, was on shift. He wasn't there. But my mom knew how to do CPR, so she came out. My aunt came running out, called 911. And everybody went into gear. And I will be honest with you that the next few moments were a blur for me. I remember holding on to my sister real tight and trying to help get the ambulance down our road. And the next thing I know, we're driving in a car behind this ambulance, rushing to Florida Hospital Altamont, which is a few miles down the road. And I remember standing in the family consultation room at Florida Hospital Altamont's ER, and this very kind-looking doctor and nurse walk in. And as they stood there, I could almost tell you exactly what they were going to tell me before they said it. And he said, I'm so sorry. We did everything we could, but, but he came like this to us, and unfortunately, he didn't make it. And I remember the doctor had to leave, but then the nurse walked in, and she just stood there real quiet. She didn't say anything, but she looked, the best way to describe it is not anxious, but rather 
holding the weight of the gravity of that moment, knowing that my 49-year-old uncle was fine 20 minutes ago, and now he's not part of our lives anymore. Now, I want to tell you, and it's true, there is so much hope for tomorrow. And we know that we'll get to see our loved ones again, but it was excruciatingly painful. It was hard. My mother was suffering already from losing her mother two years ago, and now this? And I started to ask myself the question, what is this thing around grief? What is this, perfect timing. What is this thing around, around someone suffering, and where's God in this? And what's my role? And I was never a person, I really blessed in the sense when I was younger, I, and I do credit it to my educators and even my experiences here at church. I was never someone who said, God, why did you do this to me? That's never been in my, I've never said that. That's never been really my vocabulary, so to speak, of thinking. It was always, okay, what for? This has happened, this is devastating. What now? Two years later, as my mom is, of course, helping my aunt, and we're still trying to get through this thing, um, my mom got this phone call. She's one of seven children. Her other brother was at work, freak accident on the job, and ended up dying at the age of 51. What you just did is what my family was feeling. You gotta be kidding me. How, and she was on survival mode. She was helping my family. I mean, all of us are pulling together to help with funeral arrangements. As many of you, I'm sure, know who have lost individuals, there's a lot of red tape you have to start working through when stuff like that happens, so you don't even have time to think about your grief. And so she, just, she was just working through all this, of course, struggling through what this means for her. So a few months after that, it was probably four or five months later, I remember, I remember waking up, and I... I thought to myself, why on earth am I waking up at 5 a.m.? And I wasn't reaching for a cell phone because even though I look quite young, I did not have a cell phone during these years. <laughs> I remember looking for the clock in my room and I see 5.15 a.m. And I'm like, well, today's, today's Sabbath. And I'm waking up to my mother sitting on the edge of the bed. And I'm like, what is she waking me up for? And all of a sudden, call it what you want. I believe it was the Holy Spirit. And if you knew me back then, I was a big time talker very adequate teenage Hispanic girl just jibber-jabbering. And all of a sudden, I just remember feeling like, don't say a word, Jocelyn. Just sit up and be with her. And something came over me, and we sat there, and she cried, and I cried, and we mourned together. And it was the most freeing experience of all time. And that began a journey in me thinking about how is it that we can appropriately and kindly be with people who are suffering in their most deepest grief and actually, actually know how to show them Jesus? I became a believer in preach the gospel to all the world, but only use words when necessary because most of the times during those moments, it's not really words that help. And so I asked these questions about to God, why, what's this for? Why has this happened? So I've shared this with you. I've covered about a six-year span of some of the most darkest times in my life. But what I haven't talked to you about is some of the people who were in my life during those same moments right here at this church when I was growing up. The first one I want to bring up, it's a couple actually. Does anybody in this sanctuary know John and Pat Bullock? So there's a few of you. 
So I used to walk in that back door over there, and I would come into church or from the Upper Youth Center, and whichever side I turned, and you know how big this audience, I mean, this lobby can get filled with people, as soon as John would see me, he'd say, hey, sweetie, happy Sabbath, with the biggest smile on his face, and Pat would be right next to him, and both of them would just give me the biggest bear hug, and it wasn't just once. They would do it every single Sabbath. They were so consistent. They were so loyal to their ministry. They were so kind to the point when during Pastor Mark's, we would, um, Pastor Mark's, my time with him and the youth group, we were wanting to go on this uh, trip to Costa Rica for a mission trip. And I remember thinking, I wonder if John and Pat would help me. And I really debated over writing them the letter, but I did. I wrote the letter and I sent them, it to them, but I actually, I actually hand delivered it because I really liked seeing John and Pat because it made me feel so good. And as soon as they, they found out what it was about, they said, of course, we want you to have this experience. And yet when I look back during my, my time here, it wasn't the financial help that they gave me, although I was very grateful. It was their consistent, their loyal, their kind attention to this very young child who was seeking her place in the world, so to speak. So there's a second person I want to talk about. And I'm really, really honored this morning because he's here amongst you. So I had this teacher in seventh grade. His name is Jim Lambeth, and he happens to be here today. And Mr. Lambeth, I can't call you Jim, Mr. Lambeth was one of the hardest teachers I had. (laughs) And he was so tough, but he was consistent, and he was kind. And I remember thinking, the way he would describe whatever we had to do, whatever assignment it was, Although he was strict, he was the, my, our biggest fan, and he was the strongest encourager, and he said, you can do this. So there's this one project we had to do. And the project was we had to build a bridge. And the way we would pass this assignment, it's kind of like a pass or fail, is he would stand on the bridge. And if it survived, you got an A. If it didn't, well then, you didn't pass. So I remember being really scared, thinking there's no way I'm going to build a popsicle stick bridge and it's going to survive him standing on it. And guess what? Here's the bridge. (laughs) It's actually survived over a decade. I think Vince and I were trying to figure it out. It's like 15, 16 years. Here it is. So guess what? I brought it to church and when I was getting out of the car, I nicked it on the side door and the edge fell off. I was like, are you kidding? It survives all these years, and Mr. Lamb is standing on it, me standing on it, and now it breaks. <laughs> so Vince helped me duct tape the side, so it's not technically put together right now. But this actually survived. I couldn't believe it. And a couple weeks ago, when I was thinking about um, all the pieces of this sermon, I pulled it out, and I go to put my foot on it, and my husband goes, what are you doing? And I was like, I mean, it should survive now, right? As soon as I went to stand on it, started making noises, he burst out laughing and I got off. (laughs) I said, I don't want to push my luck. (laughs) Mr. Lameth was one of those people that, as tough as he was, you knew that he was praying for you and that he wanted you to succeed so badly. He was so consistent, he was so kind, and he was so loyal. There's a third person that I want to bring up today. Does anybody in the audience know who Wanda Hopkins is? So Wanda was my English teacher, and 
she actually was a teacher during the time that this was transpiring, especially. It was after my uncle had passed, the first one, and the second one, it was around that time too. And I remember Wanda one day said to me, Jocelyn, we were leaving class and from FLA, and she said, Jocelyn, can I talk to you for a minute? And I was like, what did I do? And she was a sweetheart, but boy, if she got a hold of your ear, so to speak, you were going to get something told to you. And so I was a little nervous, and, and Wanda said, Jocelyn, I want to tell you something. I pray for every one of my students, and every time I get to your name, for whatever reason, something has bothered me. And so instead of just thinking about it, I just wanted to ask you, are you okay? Immediately tears rolled down my face, and I said, Wanda, my family's going through something really difficult right now. And I know, I know other people go through this too. I said, but I'm really struggling because some of these things have happened so closely together. And my parents, my mother in specific, is really struggling. And while I completely believe in the second coming and I know Jesus loves me and I know I'll see these people again, I'm hurting. And I'm in pain and I don't know what to do. And while she didn't have answers, because, I mean, what answers can you give? She would hug me, and she would tell me how proud of me she was and how much she has my back and how we're going to do this thing together. And if I ever needed anybody, I could call her, and I did. I called her a lot, and I met up with her a lot. And even if I wanted to avoid her because I didn't want to talk about things, first of all, you can't miss Wanda Hopkins. When she walks by, she has this incredible sense of fashion. I'm like, she just, I want to be like her. But Wanda is just one of those people. And actually, these three individuals that I've just named are individuals that when you come around them, you don't question if they've been with Christ. They really resemble who he is. They were so consistent. They were so kind. And they poured into me seeds of confidence and of love and of a passion to help other people. Now, I'm telling you about these people, and I'm missing out a whole lot of people, and I'm not going to go through all of them, but the reason why I've chosen these people is because they saw something in me before I ever knew that anything existed in me to be able to stand before you today and tell you that I serve in a hospital and I work with people who are in their most devastating moments of life. And before I knew I could even do that, these people saw something in me and my classmates. And somebody pointed out, you know, two out of the three people that you mentioned are educators. And so I want to pause and say thank you to every one of you that are in the room today. Because so many times you don't know what you're doing for somebody else. You don't know how your consistency and how loyal you are to the cause and to the mission and how kind you are will eventually spread out into the world. I bet you Wanda and Mr. Lambeth and, and John and Pat Bullock had no clue how many people in the hospital they would touch because they were just kind to me consistently because they loved on me consistently. Now I want to stop here and I want to go back to the story of Ruth for just a moment. Now if you'll recall, Ruth is from Moab. She's not someone who was raised amongst the Hebrew people. So, basically today, it would be like saying, she doesn't know what haystacks are. She doesn't know what vespers is. In fact, when I was in a classroom one time at a public school, um, we were having a vespers, and there was a crew of us who were, and I invited the person to vespers, and they said, oh, is that like the new club in town? And I was like, you know what? It's kind of like a club, just come on over. (laughs) But she didn't know any of these things. And for whatever reason, this Ruth woman 
looked at this mother-in-law of hers and said, I'm going to choose to stick by your side. I'm going to do backbreaking work. Little did she know she'd have to glean and pick from the fields. And I'm going to work hard for both of us so that we can both survive and figure this thing out together. So I'm going to do it again, and I'm going to read to you. And I'm going to start in Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. And it goes like this. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And she went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He will be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons. He has given birth to you. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood, we know that's a powerful thing, right? The woman of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse and the father of David. I don't know if you caught that. So Ruth is David's great grandmother. She's also the ancestor to Jesus who would eventually come through that line. The same Christ who died for you and I. She didn't know the lingo. She didn't get it, so to speak. But she was consistent, and she was kind, and she was loyal. So I'd like to say that my experience here was all positive. I'd like to say that I was always consistent, kind, and loyal. And I wasn't. And I did have a lot of things here that it was hard. I mean, figuring out how to be a teenager, figuring out what I wanted to do in life. It wasn't always easy. I'm, I'm leaving out a huge portion of my story about going to, off to Southern Adventist University and choosing theology as a degree because I found out you have to have that degree to become a chaplain one day. And I remember standing in classes and I had a couple people who would come up to me from time to time and say, why are you here? I thought they were asking about the class. And they said, no, why are you as a woman here? What are you doing here? And I was like, oh, yeah, I have class here. <laughs> Just bypass the question. And the truth was, it wasn't always easy. But you know what was crazy to me is when I look back, and I remember when I was younger, and I was going through all of that tr trauma in our lives, I kept thinking to myself, I don't have a doubt on this earth that God has called me to this. Because what he's allowed me to go through and the privilege I had to go through that severe emotional and uh, our family experiencing so much devastation, I have so much confidence in, a, in, a, in Christ that he has allowed me to go through that so that I can walk in these very hellish places in the hospital where people come to receive help in the most devastating times. And I think to myself, I would love for some of these people to come with me, to walk with me as I have the privilege of meeting parents who, unfortunately in Orlando, we have a lot of lakes and pools, and sometimes little children will jump in the pool and they swallow too much water and they end up in our hospital in the ICU. And then I fight with those parents, prayerfully fighting that we ask God to intervene. And sometimes physically, it's not what we would want, but somehow meaning and hope derive from those in strenuous circumstances. And it's incredible what people go through 
when I work in the NICU with premature babies, when parents are fighting like crazy, they're wondering if their baby's going to make it out alive. I am amazed that God has allowed me the opportunity to sit amongst these people. I was the most unlikely person, I can tell you that. If you look at my family history, I mean, when I told my, my family I want to be a hospital chaplain, they're like, you want to do what? And yet, I believe without a shadow of a doubt that I'm supposed to be there. Granted, I'll keep in mind that I know that ultimately my boss is him. Now, I share these things with you, and I, first of all, I want to say thank you for listening to my story. But I also want to thank you for something else. I want to thank you for what you did while I was speaking. Because I wouldn't be a chaplain if I didn't realize that when I tell you something, there's something going on in you. You're probably connecting to the story. You're thinking about the things that have happened in your life. You're thinking about the ways in which you either funneled into somebody else or maybe you've had some missed opportunities and maybe there could be some more areas for that. But especially what you have gone through personally that has led you to be sitting in the very seats that you're sitting in. And so I want to thank you for thinking about that and for reflecting with me about how God works in our lives. I believe that each one of you are here because you do believe in this great mission. You do believe in this Christ who died for us. And you are dedicated to the cause and to the mission. And so all I want to do this morning is encourage you. Thank you for listening to the story, but to encourage you to take that, to be loyal, to be kind, to be consistent. Because you never know what five or six-year-old little girl you're going to impact. And you never know what five or six-year-old little boy you're going to inspire and who they will then end up touching and serving in the community. So with that in mind, I want to um, keep my promise to you and I want to show you that I really did grow up in this church. So Patty, will you throw up my picture? So this is me as an adventurer. And I was Sabbath afternoon at my grandparents' house after a good meal and they said, wait, you look too formal, we got to take a photo. And now the second picture is of me and Dale Williams. He was giving me a trophy in the lower youth center because I had participated in playing t-ball. Thank you, Patty. And so growing up in this church, while not always easy, I was so blessed to have people who loved on me. There are so many others. The pastors here are incredible. My family and my dear husband. Because if it wasn't for him, I couldn't do what I do every day. And I have wonderful people and people like you who I believe pour yourselves into others. So I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank you for thinking about your story. And may you use your story to continue to pour into somebody else so we can keep this great mission alive and we can keep telling people about Christ because he's amazing.